0: this episode of let's think on it comes from an excerpt from O Brother Radio with Will Lockamy, Reed Lockamy, and Dr. Mark Westfall.
1: Our next guest, um, Dr. Nakost is going to help us with that because he's an expert on uh, diversity and does a lot of uh, training on how to have conversations about it. So we're going to we're going to delve into that, but just To give a little background, when we did this series about four years ago, I had read his book uh, called Taking on Diversity, and we talked about it then. And so this time around, um, I reached out, and a cold call email, he responded within like two hours and said, love to do it. I mean- Oh, he's way better than me about that. I mean, it's great. I was floored. <laughs> I was so thrilled. So I've been walking around with that book. I, he's up on a pedestal. He doesn't know how high up on a pedestal he is in my mind. I'm like, this guy is the guru. <laughs> Listen, and Dr. I got the guru on the show.
0: Do- so Dr. Westfall called me the other day, and you get like a kid on Christmas morning.
1: Just,
2: so
0: just super
1: excited. Yeah. Dr. Nacost, am I saying your name right, first off?
2: I'm a Louisiana Creole. And that last name confuses people that T is really not there. It's Nacos.
0: Nacos. Nacos. Yes, yeah, French. Nacos. <laughs> Nacos. Yes. Nacos. But
2: I, take all, I live in North Carolina, so I end up responding to a lot of different versions of my name. That's <laughs> so okay.
1: And strangely enough, both of our guests tonight are from Louisiana originally. Hmm. How about that? So, really, yeah, our first guest ranks. was from St. Charles.
2: Yep. I'm from a little town called Opelousas, Louisiana, right in the heart of the bayou country.
1: Wow. And so, how long? Give us a little background. Tell us about yourself.
2: Okay. So, I grew up in, uh, as I say, the Bayou country, not New Orleans. I, I'm from the Bayou, alligators and swamps. Really? I was born in 1951. So, I grew up in the Jim Crow South.
1: Wow. With a Catholic
2: school, uh, segregated schooling. I graduated from high school in 1969 from a still racially segregated school. Okay. From there, uh, uh, I went to college for a while, but then I, I left college and joined the United States Navy. I, ju- I was in the Navy from 1972 to 1976, during a very tumultuous time. Race riots aboard that. ships carrying weapons of mass destruction. Let's repeat that the for US the. Just hold intrepid.
1: on. Repeat that for interviewers. I'm, I interrupted. So you were on in the Navy. Say that again.
2: So I was in the Navy during a very tumultuous time for race. Race riots aboard ships carrying weapons of mass destruction. I was on board the USS Intrepid, 1973, in the Mediterranean Sea. But we had a race ride that lasted three days at sea. Wow.
1: What is that like?
2: Okay. (laughs) But this is is the beginning of my story as a social psychologist. The Navy was having major problems. Uh, 350 documented major racial incidents in the Navy from 1970 to 1975. The Navy instituted a program that required all sailors, officers and enlisted to go through two and a half days of racial sensitivity conversations. I was trained as a facilitator as one of the two hundred facilitators to guide people through those racial conversations. So I've been at this a long time. You
1: must have After had the
2: Navy I got my degrees and so on and so on.
1: You must have had an innate ability to mediate, or you would not have been put in that position, I suspect.
2: It's a very interesting question about why I was selected. In hindsight, it is very clear that my uh, the superior officers saw that in me. They saw that I was able to, what, just what you just said, uh, mediate conversations. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know I had that ability, but I did and do.
1: So, you've taken this very racially charged, divided youth that you had, and this mm-hmm. innate ability that to, to be a mediator, and you have gone on you, to do wonderful things uh, as listeners get to know you. Um, I, I love that trajectory. I love taking uh, uh, people who can take pain and turn it into good for mm-hmm. other people, mm-hmm. it's beautiful. Mm-hmm.
2: So, and it's powerful, and it's one of the things that does make my my work and my teaching and my speaking uh, really different and really able to connect to a lot of different people in a lot of different ways, because it comes from a place of real experience.
1: Right. Now, I, I went online a little bit and looked at some of your uh, – right, my professor, I'll tell you, you are – Love, <laughs> but I also saw that it initially might be a little bit intimidating to students. There
2: we go. <laughs> there we go.
1: <laughs> it's a learned love. I understand.
2: That's what it is. Tell I us use about my it. military. I use my military experience uh, to frame the way my courses go. So the first day, my students describe it as the most terrifying day of college they've ever experienced. But from there, we work out a relationship. And it becomes this very powerful classroom uh, experience.
1: And you're people can't see you, but you're not a small guy.
2: Oh no, no. I'm that's the other thing. <laughs> and you're and your
1: voice is deep. You're you're an imposing figure.
0: Uh, I'm
2: six foot physically? three, two hundred and sixty pound, dark skinned black man.
1: <laughs> I've got your picture Correct. pulled up. I was already one step ahead.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: So um so and then from Tell us, walk us through your goals. How you got into this this coursework you're doing. You have established some of the the baselines for the diversity training at North Carolina State, is where you are now a professor, correct?
2: Yeah, that's right. That's and, right. I'm at North Carolina State University and
1: won awards and whatnot. So, walk us through your, you know, your direction for this, and then I want you to move into uh, defining uh, this term neo diversity that you use.
2: Okay. So as a When I first got to NC State uh, 30-some years ago, I was a traditional social psychologist. That is, my orientation is to teach people how to do social interaction. Uh, I did that very well. My classes got bigger and bigger. But then some things started to happen uh, on campus in America where I was beginning to see some new intergroup tensions rise up. And I realized that my students, our students on our campus, didn't quite understand what was going on. So I decided to create a course called Interpersonal Relationships and Race. And that course is based on my scholarship, my experiences in the Navy, my experience growing up in the Jim Crow South, where I can teach students the context for racial tensions and then add to that social psychological learning and principles that help them understand how to navigate Uh, these kinds of interactions with people not like them. That's what brings me to my idea of neo-diversity. Look, America has gone through intergroup phases, stages, you might say. So we had uh, Reconstruction, Jim Crow South, desegregation, and then we started talking about, after desegregation, we started talking about diversity when we started talking about women's issues. But then there was this explosion of so many different groups suddenly voicing, raising their voices to gain respect. That created a new, I say, interpersonal situation. We live in a a personal situation that I call neodiversity, which means that we all have to encounter and interact with people not like us. We have no choice. So, for the the diversity situation can cause a lot of anxiety.
1: So for the listener, the groups you're talking about, can I give a list of, of the various oh, groups? Yeah.
2: Oh, race, sexual orientation, gender identity, ethnicity. So Muslims versus Christians, heterosexuals versus homosexuals, blacks versus whites versus Mexicans versus and you, you, just a right. mix of people.
1: And so you've coined it, neodiversity. I think it's a, a beautiful concept. So just to kind of go back over that for the listener, it's essentially that we have, from a social scientist standpoint, which is what the, one of the aspects I love about your direction, it re- resonates with mine. We've, we've been, as human beings, we find ourselves forced into interactions with people unlike us, no matter where we turn. That's right. And That's that exactly right. creates anxiety. Just, yes. just encountering something different than you, and and I want to piggyback on that a little bit. Um, uh-huh. Anxiety in new situations for listeners is completely normal, and so I want to help get away. And I know you do too, uh, based on reading your book. Get away from feeling guilty about feeling there anxious in new situations. Right.
2: That's, that's exactly right.
1: Yeah, it's one normal. of the things
2: that we've we've done in America is we've tied ourselves in knots. Now. Let's be clear: Is there bigotry in America? Yes. Does everybody who experienced anxiety, interpersonal anxiety, interacting with somebody not like them, is, does everybody who experiences that is that person a bigot? No, because of what you just said. Yeah, it's we all have some anxiety about interacting with someone different. Yeah,
1: and we develop preconceived ideas based on uh, past experiences or what we've heard are. Friends talk about, even if we've never had the experience ourselves, or what we've heard family members talk about, or what we've read about, or what we've heard. We have all these preconceived ideas, which also is natural, but they're inaccurate.
2: That's right. right? That's right. It's all one right. of the things I said to my students. I say to my students, look, you have ideas in your head, you don't even know you have these ideas until you're confronted with the stimulus. Suddenly you have to think about a person as a Muslim. Suddenly you have to think about a person as gay. Suddenly you have to think about a person as transgender. And, and that pulls up all kinds of ideas that you didn't know were in your head. You're feeling anxiety, and the anxiety sometimes pushes you to act on those pre existing ideas, and that's when the trouble starts. Tell us about that.
1: What do, you t- what do you do with your students? How do you walk them through that? And what's the, the you know, theoretic end game at the end of your course?
2: Okay, so the course uh, is set up through a storytelling methodology. So we do, I do a lot of storytelling in the sense of getting stories from people's lives. You've seen it in the book, where I use stories to show people what kind of scenarios can pop up in their lives and show people how people have made mistakes and then I, we analyzed why the anxiety took off, what was going on that pushed this person so far that suddenly they said something really goofy and something really offensive.
1: So for listeners um, who haven't read this Taking on Diversity book, um, there's a lot of, of vignettes that he gives of students. Uh, situations that they bring up it's really good because it's it's real world stuff that students go through that bring and he has them bring them up in class and then they walk through it as a class right
2: That's right. That's exactly right.
1: I mean you're talking about your personal stuff in front of a classroom and you're talking about your personal stuff you may not be proud of in the classroom
2: That's right. So how do I get that how do I get them to do that? Yes. Well the first first thing I have to do is tell some of my own stories. And that's just stories where People are stereotyping me. I do tell those stories. But I also tell stories where I make mistakes. Because there are no innocent. I say that in the book over and over again, and I say it in my class. There are no innocent. Nobody is above making these kinds of mistakes. And that's how I get my students to start to not feel guilty about it, but explore it.
1: I like it. You had a comment on white privilege in the book. Uh, I don't mean to put yes. you on the spot, but... Uh, no problem, that's fine. Okay, you, can, you refer, can you describe that? Well,
2: what I, yeah, what I say in the book is I'm against white privilege. The I, the I, term. I, I try to be... <laughs> what I'm doing is in hook, is hooking the reader in, but what I mean <laughs> is, I go on to explain is I'm against the idea of spending so much time talking about white privilege because of the way it's used. First off, it's not a social scientific concept. It's just some... Literally an English professor having a realization that some people, that she could do more things than some people could. Okay. That's not a social scientific concept. Do people have privileges in America? Well, yeah. Okay. But why do we pick on white privilege? Mm -hmm. We pick on it so we can make young people feel guilty. And that's not productive. What I say to my students is, I literally say this, Where were you in 1967? What did you have to do with what's going on now? That's so big, nothing. The real question is, how are you going to live your life? How are you going to deal with your interactions? We don't have to talk about white privilege to get you there. If people want to talk about legacies of racism that's what we're dealing with right now with what happened to George Floyd. That's a legacy of racism, right? You don't have to call it white privilege.
3: Yeah, but Doctor Nakos, don't you don't you think that there's some utility though in white people starting to have an understanding of the ways in which they live a life that is, in some ways, charmed um, compared to their black counterparts or you know people of color? Don't you think? I, I know for me personally. It's been very eye opening to have a better understanding in the last five to ten years to realize like, oh, yeah, I've been making a lot of like off center, you know, judgments about people my whole life. And most of that has been because I have failed to recognize the ways in which my black peers um, have had to fight a struggle that is has been very different and more difficult than my own. Don't you think there's some utility to that, though?
2: Oh, I think there's a lot of utility to that. Yeah. I'm just saying I don't think the the label white privilege yeah. gets us there. Because that's guilt all I'm
3: I think the thing you and I certainly would agree on is that guilt is something that is counterproductive. It keeps people Absolutely. from engaging yeah. and looking forward to, you know, making progress if they if they're starting off from a defensive position. So I that's probably what you're yeah. saying, right?
2: That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Because remember, I started off as a facilitator of racial dialogues. What you do as a facilitator of racial dialogues is set an environment where everybody can talk. When you say white privilege, you shut people down. People stop talking. I've seen it happen. Which
3: is kind of a white fragility thing.
2: Well, yeah, you can see all those labels are about that, and I don't do any of that in my classes. And I'm at a predominantly white institution. And my class has exploded from being 30 students to now 80 students every semester. And it's because of the way I teach it. Yeah. And, and not everybody who comes to the class expects to be changed. Some people come thinking they, they know what they're doing. Some black people think that. Some white people think that. Some Muslims think that. But I move everybody to the same space of understanding that we're all in the midst of trying to understand our social world, this new neodiversity that we all have to man- learn how to manage yeah. respectfully.
0: I was thinking about this today, how, just what you were saying, labels, no matter how genuine they are in their concept, can turn people off that would otherwise completely accept that idea. And, you know, white privilege is a great example. Also, defund the police, right? I think right. We're, see, we're, that's a real people look at that and actually they kind of break down what that means and just like from my perspective what it means is we put way too much on police officers we have we the go. police doing way too many things they're responsible for things that they're not there. trained for and so we need to set you know take the funds that we're giving to the police and still continue to fund the police department but at the same time, take away a lot of that responsibility. And I think, you know, people just miss that. When you hear, just defund the police, that's when people lose their mind. Like, whoa, 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 but we need the police. Well, of course we do, exactly. of course we do.
2: Right, right, and, and this is the problem with these very quick, uh, post-aboard ways of talking. Uh, and I understand why it happens. The human mind wants simplicity but it's destructive when we're in the midst of this kind of social change. We have to be very careful, demilitarize the police, that might be better. Or just what you just said, work on realizing that we have asked way too much of the police force. And that we need to spread those responsibilities out.
1: Yeah, we spent a fair amount of time in previous podcast talking about group dynamics and how oh, yeah. groups tend to oppose themselves and become more and more polarized, and the way around that is focus on the individual. Um, and I think that's your approach as well through some of yeah, your training.
2: I, yeah, there's two components of my approach. One is focus on the individual. So I say never, never try to interact with a person as a representative of a group. Say that
1: again. That's so one the of listeners.
2: the basic principles of my teaching. Yes. Never try to interact with a person as a representative of a group because as soon as you do that, the, the only thing you can do it through is a stereotype.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's just trouble. So that's, you're right. Focus on the individual. The second component of my teaching, though, is developing super what we call in social psychology superordinate goals. Goals that require members of different groups to work together to achieve the goal Mm -hmm.
1: you're broadening the group aren't you you're putting different groups in the same bigger group
2: there we go yeah there we go one of the things about the civil rights movement coalitions there were all kinds of coalitions that were at work we don't talk about that but that was really going on was martin luther king jr the only force? no who was working with this nonviolent movement? Who, the Jewish Defense League? I mean, there were a whole host of coalitions working together from different groups to try and move this thing forward. And that's what we need to to do now. We need to develop, because look, look at the protest now. I grew up in the Jim Crow South. There is no way Mm -hmm. we could have imagined seeing a protest of a mix of people that we have seen over the last month. Feels good, doesn't it? Oh my God. (laughs) Oh my God. I've got a These young people. The mix of young people who are out there, that is just stunning. It's wonderful.
1: Hey, that's and that is representative. Of the work you've been doing, that is exactly your goal, and you're 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 teaching young people to reevaluate the way their brain works in a non-confrontational, although maybe not initially, uh, but a a way that helps them confront themselves, really, uh, yes, in a mediating kind
2: of way. Exactly, confront yourself. One of the things that people are doing here's another uh, label that another way of talking that's really dysfunctional: unconscious bias. That is so much, if I may say so, bullshit. (laughs) And I'm the psychologist saying it. It's not unconscious. People know what they feel. They know that the the baristas in Starbucks who called the cops knew what they were feeling. They were feeling nervous. They were feeling anxious because there were two black guys sitting quietly. Mm -hmm. They knew what they felt. So it's not unconscious.
1: Do Do you... I'm curious about your thoughts on this term. Maybe it's the same one that you're using. Implicit bias?
2: Yeah, same idea. Okay. The idea, okay.
1: So do you not think that sometimes it can be so repeated that it moves to the unconscious and it needs to be brought back to consciousness? Is that possible?
2: I am not saying that people are always conscious of everything that's going on in in their psychology. Mm -hmm. But I am saying, that we have to be very careful about giving people easy ways to say, well, I didn't really realize. Yeah.
1: The way I tend to use that is to say, is to help people understand you do a lot of things automatically without thinking about Uh, it. Oh, automatic. And we need to make that, that underlying bias that has become un- implicit or unconscious back to
3: consciousness. And this is what Verne Meyer says, that you know the, the baristas may have had what an implicit bias, because if you had asked them, do you feel nervous around black people, they might have said, well, no, I don't. They wouldn't but- admit it. Yeah, and then when they're confronted with it, all of a sudden, that bias that has been previously implicit comes to the surface, and they feel uncomfortable. So I think you make a good point, but maybe also we're walking around with a lot of baggage that we may not realize until all of a sudden we're confronted with a
2: situation. No, that's right. Yeah, That's exactly right. That's what what catches people off guard. We had an incident in our Department of Psychology of all places. Where on a Saturday, uh, one of our faculty members, who happened to be a white female, was walking uh, towards her office, and a black male was walking the other way, and they just passed each other in the hallway. That's all that happened. Suddenly, she said she felt nervous. She got into her office. She called the campus police, and the campus police, you know, come because now this, this woman is saying that there's somebody here that makes me feel unsafe. Turned out to be one of our graduate students. mm I saw the story. So,
1: yeah.
2: And that, and so remember who, who is, this is happening to. A psychologist.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: A person who studies <laughs> and does this kind of work. Yeah, <laughs> uh,
0: Look, Dr. N- Dr. Nikos, we're going to take a quick break, but we have a bunch sure. of questions for you, including from our listeners as well. But right now, before we take a break, I have a question for you. Would you, during sure. this break, because I have to put you on hold and you're going to have to listen to music, would you rather hear Love Train by the OJs, or Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions doing People Get Ready by the oh, Five of course, Blind Boys. Oh, People
2: Get Ready. Okay, right, you, you, you read my book. You know it's People Get Ready.
0: <laughs> a, Dr. Westfall gave me a heads up on that, but I couldn't find the, the uh, Five Blind Boys of Alabama doing it, so it's Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions. Uh, that's the that's version. That's wonderful. There. Okay, excellent. That's wonderful. Good stuff. Thank you. Boy, what a fantastic conversation this has been so far, and I cannot wait to continue it, Dr. Rupert Nikos. Mm-hmm. I, I'm very. I, feel like I'm going to mispronounce the name all night long, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. This this has been great. So I wanted to ask you about this and kind of lead into something uh, that you've talked about in your book. But earlier you talked about being on a Navy ship in the 70s right. and there's a race riot, right? On a, yeah. a Navy ship with like me- weapons of mass destruction. I've never heard of this. Also, I only this year, I, I'm... I almost be forty. I'm almost forty. I, I just this year learned about the uh, Tulsa Massacre. Like there why, we go. these are yeah. things that in my history books I That's was fair. not taught about at all. Um, and I know that you talk about in the book because Dr. Westfall told me uh, that you know you have to basically kind of get your students to clear their brains based on what they the misinformation that they have learned. But so that brings me to why do I not know about? these race wars on the Navy ship. Was that something that was on the news or no?
2: Okay. The military is a very interesting institution, as you know. Now, when when, when the race riot happened that I was uh, on board the ship that I was a, a member of, we were actually given orders not to ever speak about this. That doesn't mean it didn't get out. It did get out. But most importantly, in in 2006, a Naval historian found the documents and wrote a book where he, he walks everyone through all of the 350 major racial incidences in the Navy from 1970 to 1975. The book is called Black Sailor, White Navy. Most important to say here, though, is this, that America has done this very interesting thing in its educational system. It has, sorry to say it this way, whitewashed our racial history. It has avoided intentionally telling the real story. And what does that set up? It sets up, for my students, I see this all the time. It sets up this naive understanding of race, which means they don't think it's that big a deal. And so they tell racial jokes, they think that's fine. Or they just say, well, they tell a racial joke. It's okay, it's just a joke and then it blows up in their face when it goes on social media.
3: You know, you said that uh, your course is based in you know storytelling and narrative, and I've had the honor of hearing Brian Stevenson speak several times. No and one car. of the things, oh yeah, he's so great, and he talks about oh, the importance of narratives. And one of the things that he talks about is the, his concern about the way that the civil rights movement has been just oversimplified and reduced oh, to this God. three-day event. And, of course, it's, like you mentioned, it's much more complex than that. And all of these, you know, groups that came together to work very hard and courageously mm-hmm. to effect that change. So we have to be very careful about the narratives that that we believe and, and you know, not—we uh, have to give them, I guess, proper, uh, you know, uh, credit and respect.
2: And this, this, what's so interesting, though, is for young people, that's hard for them to do because no, nobody is around them in when they're in elementary school and high school— who's willing to tell them the story, they, it's avoided. And so they be, they're walking around naive without realizing what they don't know mm-hmm. until they come, those who come, come to a college campus. And then they are angry. You just said it. Why is it that I'm only learning this that I'm almost 40? One of you just said it. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah that me. Yeah, Tulsa, Wilmington massacre. Yeah. Yeah. My, when my students learn about these things, I have students in my class who literally sit in the classroom crying. So
1: let me ask because you this about the structure of your class. You're in the Department of Psychology, right? That's right. And so, you know, I think there are departments at colleges of African-American studies. Mm-hmm. And we had uh, Dereef Jamison from UAB, and he said, you know, most of the people taking that course, those courses here, are African-American. And, but you're telling me most of the people take your course, maybe it's part of the university, but uh, the people that go to the university, but are mostly white. That's do you right. think, what can we do at, at, well, certainly at any educational level, but, but it seems like maybe what you call it, you know, changes people, right. that, that, whole, that whole bias of, <laughs> I don't wanna take that, you know, and, and feel awkward. or that, you know, I'm not African American, so I'm gonna stand out, take an African American studies class. So, you know, can you address that a little
2: bit? Sure. I have the great advantage of being in the Department of Psychology, of being a social psychologist, and being able to label my course what it really is. I start with interpersonal relationships. Who's not interested in interpersonal relationships? Exactly. So it's interpersonal relationships and race. And so the labels do actually matter. Even with my course, Interpersonal Relationships and Race, Students have told me that when they dis- when they tell somebody they're taking a course called interpersonal relationships and race, they say, "Why are you taking that?" Mm-hmm. And so, if you add to that a course in Africana studies, holy smoke! So it is true that people are carrying around these ideas about what applies to their lives, and that the label sometimes pushes them away from learning more. Mm-hmm. That is really unfortunate. Again, I have the advantage of being in the the straightforward department of psychology. Right, right.
0: So you hit on something uh, just a bit ago where you you talked about people make jokes because they don't understand the seriousness and then it gets out on social media and then they're embarrassed by that. So about a year ago, a friend of mine, a friend of mine reads as well, um who is a, a great guy i mean I, I can just say this up and down like somebody who i, I really respect and like a lot and i n- think that i know is not a racist person um his daughter was caught on one of these videos and it, it made national news it was a big it was oh, a big deal uh, and you know, he was devastated he, he didn't understand how this could have happened uh, because he does not think of himself at all as being racist. In fact, he thinks the opposite. And uh, we host, you know, interracial parties. Like we have basketball at our my parents' house with his kids and my kids. And it, he. So I think what we learned from that, and it was the first time like this was addressed for me at all. And thank goodness it was as a parent that it's uh, not it's not enough to be not racist. It's, that's right. It's not enough. You have to go the extra step and talk about it actively, and take your kids to see Just Mercy, and, you know, do have these talks. And, of course, this is something that you have been doing, and I'm just late to the game on it. But it happened because my friend was put in this terrible situation. And, you know, he had people come to protest his business, and he walked No, no, but listen, he walked out and said, I'm with you. What do you need? And he okay, took.
2: Okay, good for him. That was took, a good move.
0: Yeah, he took food and, and water, and he said, "I'll stand out here with you." He said, "I'm as outraged as you are, and what can I do?" And of course, then from that moment on, not only do we have great discussions about it, but he then took his daughter, of course, to the Equal Justice Initiative and through oh counseling, and yeah, did everything that you know we should all be doing already.
2: Well, it's so interesting that you you make the really important point. There's a uh, relatively old study now, 10 years maybe, that showed that families in which people believe themselves to be colorblind and never discuss race are rearing children who are going to make those kinds of mistakes because it's never been addressed directly. And you have to always understand, parents do, they don't like to think about this, that your children have other social influences on them when they're not with you. What? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well, and,
3: and I read about this study in Poe Bronson's book, uh, Nurture Shock, and he, there's a whole That's chapter. It. Yeah, it's a wonderful book uh, from cover to cover, but in particular, that chapter you're talking about that talks about race, you know, you hear people all the time say, um, you know, well, no one is born racist. You have to be taught to be racist. But of course, that uh, illuminating chapter in that book talks about the ways in which actually we may be kind of hardwired for in-group, out-group, and if if you don't teach children that race is not a reliable way to judge people, actually we may kind of be born racist.
2: Okay, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, That's what you just did, but you're right about the in-group, out-group part. Yeah. We are, it's it's built into the social, the human species. Yes. We automatically, it's called the minimal group effect, we automatically categorize people into us versus them.
1: Yep. and you and you Unless, shouldn't feel guilty
2: about that. Yeah, say again.
1: And you should not feel guilty about that. No.
2: Yeah. No, but you should be. What should What should happen is you should learn how to rein that in. Yes. Right? Yes. Because it's one of the things I talk about in all my books. The question that neo diversity raises for everybody in social interaction is this: Who are the we, and who are among the they? Racial segregation, which is a large part of our history, did a very specific thing. It made it very clear who was the who was wees and who were the they's because the we's could go places and do things that the they's could not. We got rid of that large law system. So now when you go to the movies, when you go to Target, when you go to wherever you go, there are a lot of different folks running around who don't look like you. When my students come to NC State, they are stunned by the mix of people. And what I have to help them understand is, everybody here is a we. There is no they. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And I use their own uh, sports cheer against them. I say, everybody here is Wolfpack. And then I make them do the cheer, Wolfpack, Wolfpack. (laughs)
1: Man, I wish I had your class. (laughs) I mean, it just speaks to... I mean, it's beautiful because you're you're obviously, as a social scientist, we speak similar language, but you bring in the concept of what is is natural to being human and then you Uh help them challenge uh, Mm. some of the mistakes along the way of being human and how we have the brain to do that,
2: right? Yes. You know, one of those funny things that people always... Not people always, I shouldn't do that. That too many people trying to say, you know, evolution says that we're going to do us versus them. And I go, well, you know, evolution also gave us a cognitive system. Mm -hmm. We're thinkers. So let's not act as if all we are is, you know, cave people. We are now very cognitive, and we can use that evolutionary structure to better ourselves. Yeah, and so it's not just us versus them. It's how we train ourselves, and how we train our children, how we help people have conversations.
0: We're speaking. I mean, with Dr. Some of the people oh, I worked sorry.
2: with in the Navy. Some of the people I worked with in the Navy were uh, close to being Klansmen. At the at the end of two and a half days, those were people who were shaking my hand with tears in their eyes. Wow.
3: Well, and that, of course, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, the story of Daryl Davis and the way that he has filled up a closet in his house with clans you know or clan robes uh, because he has been intentional about oh, yes. yeah, treating humans like individuals even when they belong to really problematic groups right. and and converting people.
2: Well, one of the things I talk about in my new book to Live Woke, is one of the things I'm worried about is too many uh, young people who call themselves woke. I'm woke now, uh, do a lot of trolling. They, They do a lot of judgmental stuff about people's past who voted for Donald Trump and that kind of stuff. And I have to keep telling people, look, there were people who were former Klansmen who came into the fold of the civil rights movement. And if we had pushed them away, that would have been a problem.
1: That is beautiful. That's not how you do this. So let me ask you this question, and actually, Will wants to give a little tagline. Yeah,
0: just really quick. I just want to remind listeners that we are listening to Dr. Rupert Nakos, and uh, he is, of course, at the Department of Psychology at NC State University, also author of three books, including Talking on Diversity and To Live Woke, as we just mentioned.
1: Yeah, which is, by the way, for the listeners, a brand new book. The one I mentioned is, I mean, like this month, right, Dr. Nakos? Yes, this month. Yeah. So just out got to go get that one um, question. So oh, how many years have you been doing this class? 14. Okay. And are you seeing over that time frame any difference in the way that the students are presenting to the class with the knowledge they oh. have or the awareness, or is oh, it the yes, same? I have. Okay. What, what's going on there?
2: So when I first started teaching it, uh, students were interested, you know, this this is Dr. Nykos, he's a crazy professor, I kind of want to see what he has to do with this. The last, it really shifted, 2015, 2016, especially 2016, <laughs> uh, the presidential campaign, mm-hmm. holy moly. Suddenly, it, it, and this happened in the summer, I was, uh, look, I don't teach in the summer, I was looking over. I decided to check the enrollment for the fall. And I looked at the enrollment for my course and suddenly there were 80 people enrolled. I was like, how did that, the last time I taught this course it was 50. Now it's 80 and it has been 80 ever since. And then the other thing is, so it's much more interest, and then suddenly, and, and the other thing that's different is when I ask on the second day of class, what kinds of topics do you hope we get to talk about in this course? Holy smoke. Sophisticated concern questions about bigotry, questions about uh, tensions, questions about interracial marriage, questions about wow, they have blown me away with what they bring right at the beginning.
0: Uh, Annie uh, Lister ask. So, how do you measure? And I think you may have just answered this how do you measure the effectiveness? Of what you're teaching, and do you see oh. other universities using the same methods?
2: Oh, yeah, no, not the- <laughs> okay. Two <laughs> things. <laughs> How do I measure it? <laughs> First off, my course is very unique. Uh, it's a combination of things: my my scholarship, my experiences, and so on. And I know of no other course that approaches it from the interpersonal relationship perspective. No, nowhere else in the world. So that's one thing. How do I measure the change? My students do a lot of writing in this course, and the last thing they do, the last piece of writing they do, uh, is an analysis of one of their own experiences. And in that analysis, I see how, and they express how, they have a really new, fundamental understanding of how this anxiety can, this neo-diversity anxiety can take over, what it means. They know the difference between prejudice, bigotry, and racism. I see a lot of change. So it's a qualitative assessment of change, but no other university that I know of is uh, doing anything like this.
1: Any thoughts on how we can change that last statement? How can we affect a change in how we teach these? Because uh, you know, your your book. I mean, from a psychiatric standpoint, uh, uh-huh. when we were doing covering this topic before, um, you know, I'm I, you know looked online, try to figure out something to kind of connect with and i you know sampled some books and yours just resonated with me because that, that is the that's the way i talk to my patients and you know in my world patients tell you know open up a lot of things and some of the thoughts are you know uh, and, and behaviors they might not be proud of and these right. are the, these are the same approaches we take i want to maybe uh kind of close with, with this a little bit we're almost out of time but the the approach you had about uh a, a polite confrontation Right. Um, which we haven't touched on that, I want you to touch on that here in just a second, is very similar to our approach we take in group and family therapy on communicating oh, yeah. to your family members. So walk people through that a little bit, if you would, on what a polite confrontation is, and this, there's been studies behind it to show that it is an effective way to change people's uh, uh, interactions.
2: So one of the interesting things about my training is The first part of my training was training as a group facilitator. So that's all group dynamic training. And it's all Kurt Lewin uh, of social psychology. So when I got into graduate school and learned who Kurt Lewin was, I realized that this idea of tension systems was what I was working with. The tension system is this. You really push people to bring forward these uncomfortable feelings, thoughts that they've had, but you make sure that you've made it clear that the environment is a safe environment, that I'm not going to judge them, I'm not going to let anybody in the room judge them. And But they bring it forward, and that tension system is right there. And then I help them explore why they have had this experience, why they behave this way, why what they can do about their thinking and those feelings and how they can manage themselves. And so the confrontation in this tension system changes them. It gives them an opportunity to feel it and learn to manage it. That's the idea.
0: And Dr. Nakos. It- so I've been asking uh previous, previous guests, this thing, because uh, I'm very curious about it. The way that I, when I watched George Floyd's video, the way it affected me uh-huh. was uh, monumental. I mean, it was, it just changed everything. And uh, that's sure. not the, you know, uh, Ahmaud Arbery's was a very similar situation. Um, for you someone who had been through literal confined race rights you've seen so yeah. much uh, did you were you affected in the same way or was it kind of when you watched it was it a yeah i know kind of deal
2: no it wasn't it wasn't that simple no 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 cuz it was horrifying it was horrifying to see a human being treated that way in the context of the history of race I probably had a more tempered response than my students did who were crying and emailing me and just losing their minds. But at the same time, I was hurt. I was so hurt. And I can't watch it. I mean, they keep showing it. I just can't.
0: Have you not watched it, the whole thing?
2: i watched it once, and that yeah. was enough. Oh, yeah, yeah, same.
0: No, I could not watch yeah. it again. There's no question, but yeah.
2: Yeah, it's just horrifying. But you're right. At the same time, I've seen things like this before. Uh but this one the thing about media now is it's everywhere. And that has a, has had another powerful effect on America. It's like the first images of well, Birmingham. Yeah. Right. Uh that Americans saw was it Birmingham? Fire yeah. hoses nope, and yeah, all that. Sure. It was. Yep.
0: Blocks away from where we sit right yep.
2: now. Right, right, right. It's the same kind of effect but bigger, because everybody's got these cell phones, you got computers, you, got, you can't get away from it, uh, and it's in color, and whoo, so it, had, it has had a powerful effect on our country, but it hit me as well. My focus, the way I always op- I operate now, because of all of my experiences, is I immediately shift to, okay, what is this going to mean about the number of emails I get? What is this going to mean about what people expect me to say and do? What is it going to mean for that? But I also have to take some time for myself to process the emotion that I feel.
1: Do you feel that the reaction to this, I mean, you've been through a lot of civil rights reactions. Do you feel yes. this one differently in any way? Yes. What's, what do you feel differently?
2: The thing that, okay, I've already mentioned it I'll mention it again it's the mix of people who are out there protesting with real vigor and real care and anger appropriate anger we've never seen anything like this that's different and much and, and hopeful
1: yeah I because feel-
2: america look america has changed america's been changing all along This is one of those indicators of how much it has changed over the last 10, 15 years, though, in terms of young people have many more connections to each other across these neodiversity dimensions. I mean, I see it on my campus, and I'm now seeing it out in the streets. That is very hopeful.
3: And, you know, people often will say, well, good news, the younger generation gets it and you know (laughs) but of course I'm always very wary about that kind of thing because look for all of time in this country you would you (laughs) would like to think that younger generations are getting a little bit better incrementally but you know I've heard you in your introduction to uh, I think your second book talk about how you've had some angst about you know young people nowadays saying like oh I'm being oppressed and of course you're saying well wait a second I grew up in Jim Crow but of course I mean you know 80 years before that there would be people who might say to you like well shoot you don't know what you're talking about because I grew up in <laughs> right. slavery right so right. I, th- I, I think I am hopeful that younger generations are going to do better but I don't think it's just going to happen naturally even because of neo diversity I feel like well, it's going to have to be right, intentional though. right
2: that's right It's not. it's never going to happen automatically right. and so called naturally we have to help them I always say this I am very hopeful about young people they want to learn, but that's on us. We have to teach them.
3: It has to be intentional. Yeah. We have to talk about it directly and openly um, if that's we right. want the new generation to to really get it in a way that is meaningful. I agree. That's right. yeah, I, I, I was I, really
1: I, feeling hopeful when Dr. Nacos was talking, and then Reed's kind of brought me down a little bit. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry. I, Sorry. Got, oh, I got to move back to Dr. <laughs> for uh, just a second. Uh, the... Um, you closed your one of your TED talks with uh, the uh, arc of, of the moral universe.
2: The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice.
1: Yeah, I feel like Dr. We King
2: are, always quoted that. Yeah, yeah. We, I, what I, I th- like to the other way I like to talk about this though is that we are now building. We should be working to build a set of daybreakers. The poem is by Anna Bontemps. We are not come to wait to strike with swords upon this hill. It is not wise to waste a life against a stubborn will. Yet would we die as some have done, beating away for the rising sun. Beating away for the rising sun.
0: I can't think of a better way to finish this uh, unless we could just do like another three hours, but uh, <laughs> sadly, sadly we're out of time. Patsy writes in and says, uh, hey, uh, please act... Please ask Dr. Nakas if he can return for another visit. I, I'm going to do one better. Uh, Reed, you're fired. Uh, Dr. Westfall, yes. no more. It's just going to be me and Dr. Nakas from now on. Uh, this, is, uh, this is how the show is going to go forward. I say thumbs up to that. Yeah, listen, you, you've been one of the best guests. We've been doing this this show for 11 years now. And uh, this has been one of the most enjoyable conversations we've had. I mean that sincerely, sincerely. So
2: I appreciate hearing that. And I I had a good time. I had a good time. Well, look, and we will bring you back.
0: Yeah. We can't wait to do it again. There's no question. You know how to find me. Absolutely. And I can't wait to get home tonight and stay up way too late watching your TED talk. (laughs) (laughs) I guarantee you that's all I'll be doing. So thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Take care. Absolutely. Bye bye now.
0: Boy, good stuff. Oh yeah. No question.
1: Yeah, so you see why I was a kid on Christmas? Yeah,
0: no, I know. Makes perfect sense. <laughs> to listen to Dr. Mark Westfall live, check out O Brother Radio on Birmingham Mountain Radio. 107.3 FM in Birmingham, 97.5 in Tuscaloosa at com or on the free BMR app. Join in with your questions and comments on Twitter at Lockamy Brothers.